This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at home? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he has No! Hello and welcome back to the Now That's What I Call Quickly Kevin Specials. This is number eight. I'm Chris Skull. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And the man with a more forgettable England career than Nick Barmby, it's Mr. Michael Marden. Hello. Only just more forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) How are you two keeping? Good. Very well. Very, very well. What's your favourite bit of football content that you've seen recently, Josh? I did the uh, I did a thing on Channel Four lunchtime TV show called the Steph Show, and uh, another guest was Joe Cole and Carly Cole, previously Carly Zucker. They've got some charity, haven't they, to do with coronavirus and funding from the NHS. But uh, Joe Cole had a. Uh, do you remember that guy on the BBC News whose kids ran in the uh, back of behind them? Yeah, uh, yeah. He had one. He had one of those moments. Oh, great! Joe Cole and Carly Zucker had their child <laughs> run in behind them while they're being interviewed about coronavirus. Did I imagine <laughs> their kid might have run in with a little ball, did a bit of skill, and then left? He was asking for chocolate, which <laughs> I thought was a damning indictment of their parenting. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't at all. We've all been there. <laughs> um, I thought it'd be a funny thing to say. It got me thinking about Joe Cole. I hadn't really thought about him in a decade. And I was thinking about like the kind of idea of potential and fulfilling your potential. And I was thinking that Joe Cole hadn't fulfilled his potential, but then I was thinking about how much he'd won and how many games he'd played for England. And I kind of thought he was so hyped that basically like the fact he wasn't Pele meant that he had failed to fulfill his potential. It's a bit like what Phil Foden's really facing up to now if he isn't the greatest player ever to have been for England. Yeah, it's a tricky one, that, isn't it? Because, I mean, really, what, he didn't win the Champions League, but he's won everything else. He's no, played it wasn't England. so much about him winning stuff, was it? It was more a case of he played in teams that won stuff, but he was never the best player in the team that won stuff. Yeah. He's the one you forget that was in that England team. He's the Nick Barnby of his generation. <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's an inherently British thing, though. Like, there is a sense amongst certain fans that... Wayne Rooney didn't fulfil his potential. Which, yeah, I know, it's the same thing. And he is England and Manchester United's all-time goalscorer. Yeah. And it's it's absurd. You're like, well, he could have been better or should have been better. It's like, well, what does he need to do? What does a player need to do? 
well, to meet those expectations. I, I think Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel well, Messi. I think that's the comparison you have to make, isn't it? And I think Sir Alex Ferguson said at one point Wayne Rooney was better than Ronaldo, but Ronaldo just lived a very different lifestyle, didn't drink really much alcohol, trained like a demon. And then you, you, there's no comparison really in the career, between the careers of Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney. And I think at one point there could have been a comparison, but, but ultimately you look where they are now. And it, I mean, it speaks for itself. He hasn't, he, like in that respect, he hasn't achieved what he could have achieved. Yeah. Martin Phillips, so I think, I think I've said this before, but Martin Phillips played for Exeter City. He ended up playing in Paul Stark's team that won the 2002, what would now be League Two title for Plymouth. But, um, when Alan Ball was his manager at Exeter City in the no, mid-90s, he said he was going to be the first £10 million player. Imagine saying that <laughs> about a player when you're at what? Exeter. But then Alan Ball signed him at Man City as well. When Alan Ball became the manager of Man City, he signed him. And he was um, not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Most hyped young players would be a good bit of correspondence. If you've got any... Uh, hugely hyped young players, uh, then do get in touch. We will be covering AD Mike next week. Anyway, here's some correspondence. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Now, this got me very excited because it was called This Will Change Your Life. But also, um, the person that sent the initial email, William Porteous, and we've never had this, he wasn't sending me the story. He had copied in his friend and basically said, this is my friend. He did a kind of one of those emails where you meet someone up and he was like, this is my friend who's got a great story. He's saying I was on a blind date. Yeah, he basically set us up on a blind date, but it was good. Uh, so this is Seb Pernell who we got set up with. I was born into a family of avid Wimbledon fans, the fourth of four sons. My two oldest brothers had started supporting the Dons in the early 80s and had watched the birth of the crazy gang under Dave Harry Bassett and the meteoric rise to the fourth division to the first in only four years. By the time Bobby Gould's appointment as manager, my older brother, Ollie, was a precocious 14-year-old with hours of boredom to while away at a boarding school in Berkshire and limited opportunities to watch his beloved Dons in person at their home in Plough Lane. He therefore struck up what can only be described as a pen-pal relationship with Bobby Gould. <laughs> Sorry, what? Yeah, writing to him, often with observations from his Rothmans football yearbook as to which lower league players Bobby should keep an eye on and who the Dons should seek to offload or cash in on in the summer transfer market. For reasons still unknown to me, my brother adopted the nom de plume of his correspondence with Bobby, Ollie Chalmers, the surname Chalmers, borrowed from our great-aunt Beryl's second husband. Somewhat surprisingly, Bobby unfailingly responded to my brother's letters, thanking him for his transfer tips and his unwavering support for the club. Bobby's courtesy even extended to arranging for the provision of two tickets to the 1988 FA Cup final versus Liverpool, when Ollie had written to him, lamenting his inability to source a ticket for himself and our brother Eddie. So my two oldest brothers got to witness in person Wimbledon's greatest ever moment as the Crazy Bang beat the Culture Club at Wembley. Ollie was understandably gutted when Bobby was replaced by Ray Harford a couple of seasons after a famous cup win. And alas, Ray was not as receptive to Ollie Chalmers' unsolicited armchair expertise as Bobby had been. <laughs> so, Ollie started instead to redirect his correspondent to Ray's boss, Lebanon's most famous wheeler dealer, Sam Haman. So began a quite extraordinary relationship, which saw my brother become a kind of consigliere uh, to Premier League's most eccentric owner for the remainder of the 90s. As the rapport developed, not only would Sam, like Bobby before him, graciously respond to Ollie's letters, but, unlike Bobby, he would also, from time to time, 
call our home telephone number, which Ollie always included in the header in his letters. By the mid-90s, by which time, Ollie had completed university studies in Edinburgh and relocated back to the family home in South London. I recall all my father answering the phone to somebody who, in a thick Lebanese accent, was asking to speak to Ollie Chalmers. My dad presumed it was Ollie's Scottish pal, Shirley, trying to wind him up, and when asked, is that you, Shirley, was met with the reply, this is Sam Haman, the owner of Wimbledon Football Club, and if you call me Shirley again, I'll give you two hours to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> During the mid-90s, it was not uncommon for my 10 to 12-year-old self to answer our home phone to the dulcet Middle Eastern tones of Uncle Sam, asking whether he could please speak to Ollie Chalmers. I quickly have to remember that my oldest brother's pseudonym and go and fetch him, whereupon they would have lengthy chats over the phone discussing everything from the Don's team selection to transfer policy. I recall in particular in the summer of 2005, Sam rang Ollie after receiving a bid of £4 million from Newcastle for Warren Barton, which would not only become Wimbledon's club record sale, but would see Barton become the most expensive defender in British football history at the time. I recall running into the garden and shouting, Ollie, Sam Herman's on the phone again. Sam saw Ollie's counsel on whether he thought Kenny Cunningham, signed earlier that season from Millwall, was ready to step into Barton's shoes as our first short right back, or whether we'd have to use some of the Barton sale proceeds to sign a more experienced replacement. Once Ollie had satisfied Sam of Cunningham's ready to step into the breach, Sam sanctioned Barton's departure. Alas, as soon as Sam sold his 80% stake in the Dons to billionaire Norwegian fishing magnates in 1997, his influence at the club and that of my brother dwindled discernibly. By the end of the decade, Sam had sold his remaining stake and our beloved club's demise and ugly relocation to Milton Keynes was over only a further four years away. The early to mid-90s were a heady time for the Dons. The club finished in the top ten of the top flight on four occasions between 1990 and 1996. A staggering achievement for a club its size. I like to think that my big brother, Ollie Chalmers, had a small part to play in it. Seb Purnell. Astonishing. But something about that fact that happened at Wimbledon that I can fully believe. Yes. I'd like to meet Ollie Purnell because I, I think he must to have pulled this off if we're to take this email at face value, which I am, because I don't think you would write such a long and detailed email. I buy that Sam Herman and Bobby Gould are two people for whom this would be the kind of thing that might happen. I mean it's it's far too elaborate a ruse for there not to be some truth in there. But what I would assume is that Ollie has some of those letters somewhere, yeah. surely. And if you do, Ollie, yeah. have these sort of pen pal correspondence between Bobby and Sam, please take some pictures and I'd, send them I'd, our I'd way. I'd love to know from Seb and from Ollie, if Ollie is uh, willing to talk to us about it, like what it was that he said that got them on side. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, what are they getting from this relationship? Like, I don't know, is he a sort of agony aunt or a therapist? Well, I think that like... there was probably a degree of football intelligence in Ollie's letters that maybe it could be argued that Bobby Gould and Sam Herman lacked. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect they knew they knew nothing about football. And when I someone think... sends you a letter with what appears to be some decent insight, I think they just grabbed at it. I'd love to know more about it. I think that's a bit unfair on Bobby Gould because I think actually Bobby Gould was a genuinely a knowledgeable football manager. I say that having listened to the Bobby Gould one this week and you forget beyond the Wales bluster that Bobby Gould was a, a successful football manager who knew a lot about football and not someone who's going to be tricked by a 14-year-old unless this 14-year-old yeah. is very good at... But obviously over letter, it's a lot easier than over the phone. Well, I suspect Bobby Gould is just a very lovely man. Yeah. And 
did respond and probably Ollie wasn't the only person that he responded to. The Sam Haman one is far more interesting <laughs> because this is a multi multi-millionaire we're talking about. One thing I will say about Sam Haman, I often think like these football directors and football chairmen, I, I think at times it probably is quite a lonely job and there's not really much counsel I reckon you can garner yeah. from a footballing perspective. And I wonder whether when a fan like that sends you a letter, you're like, well, here's actually a sounding board that I can go to that is outside of like the kind of the directors or maybe the footballing style, like a proper fan who I can speak to. And maybe has, like, like I say, a decent level of insight. Yeah, he probably didn't know how old he was either. He was an early, an early catfish. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see some of a man on catfish. The, the MTV TV show, Sam he's, t- he's turned up with some uh, training and tactics grid formations. He's, n- he's not turning up for anything sinister. He's just like, he, wa- he wants to know about inside forwards. Do you know what? How good would it be to do like a, a catfish episode with Graham Sooner so he go find Ali Dyer and sit the two of them down <laughs> and talk about what happened and why he did it? Um... So, do you want uh, something a bit more light-hearted? Not light-hearted, but a bit more... Uh, Credible. Throwaway. <laughs> it's from Tony Colby uh, on uh, Stephen Frogger. Steve Frogger. When talking about rising stars in the game the other week, you mentioned the 90s, elusive 90s left footer Steve Frogger. Reminded me of an interview I heard him do when he was in his pomp at Villa Wolves or Coventry, where he happened to mention the fact that at the beginning of the bill, during the opening credits, uh, stroke music... The walkie-talkie states, arrest Stephen Froggart. He seemed very proud of this trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've listened to it hundreds of times, but still am unsure if this is the actual dialogue or not. As I say, he saw it as a claim to fame in the interview. Keep up the good work, Tony. I'm excited to hear this. I know it's not going to be true, but, but I'm excited to hear it. But imagine hearing that yourself in the Bill theme tune. Do you remember the closing credits of the Bill? It was yeah. just the two pairs of feet walking yeah, down the I street. I was allowed because we used to watch the Bill, and it would have been when I was about 10 or something, and it would be my bedtime was at the end of the Bill, right? I, I struck a deal where I could stay up until the feet had disappeared from screen. <laughs> <laughs> I used to pretend that I was interested in um, Tomorrow's World and I really wanted to learn about stuff so I could stay up later to watch it. Wasn't it on at half seven? All right, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I always remember on, like, I would leave my homework, like, right to the last minute of a weekend, which is obviously a Sunday. And I remember when Antiques Roadshow would come on, I'd be like, Okay, I'm bang in trouble now. That really gets to get has to get done. And I knew if I still hadn't done it by the time London's burning was on, it was you know excuses need to be made the following day. Oh yeah! What? I buy that. Do you buy that? Do it again. Do you want it again? I can't believe I that. I have to say, I thought there's there's no way this is true. Yeah. I can't believe it's true. It's true. Um, that's absolutely <laughs> amazing. Well, there we go. Uh, I mean, sometimes you think we're going to have exhausted football in the nineties, and then you think, how have we not come up with that in seven series? The Steve Roberts <laughs> and the into the bill. Um, if you want to get in touch with anything along those lines, this is how you do it. Do get in touch with us on the show. Uh, email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Twitter at quicklykevin or our Instagram 
which is at Quickly Kevin. I'm Clyde Tilsley, ITV Sport in London. Now, some more best bits from the Quickly Kevin archive. Michael, what have you got for us today? First up, John Moncur tells us about Spurs' 1991 FA Cup run and playing with Gaza. Um, that cup run was like synonymous with Gaza. Like, mm. obviously, he got the winner against Arsenal in the semi final, and then the final nearly cuts Gary Charles in half and does his cruise shit. Yeah. He must have been with him before the game. Well, how fired up was he? Yeah, obviously, the balance of you know getting that he was so excited and he was probably one of the best players I would say in the world at that time Mm. midfield Uh, and he proved that in the World Cup but with Gazza it was getting that balance and he was over you know he was overzealous no doubt I mean the first tackle we nearly took Charlo's head off I mean that was GBH wasn't it but I remember one of the games this is how good he was we played Portsmouth and it go to Fratton Park's quite an hard game and basically mm. it was a terrible pitch that day but that night after uh, we had our pre-match meal Gazza couldn't keep still couldn't go to sleep so we went in the in the hotel there was a squash court so there was about half a dozen of us and Tottenham played it all the time it's like piggy in the middle and basically it's, it's we all do it now like as a warm up but we was in there till 2 o'clock in the morning what just playing piggy in the middle yeah ridiculous I mean that's how you prepare <laughs> It didn't matter to me because I wasn't. I was again fourteenth man. Yeah. But next day we woke up. I said my legs are gone, and he like no, he couldn't walk as I mean, <laughs> and he was doing all mad sort of uh, exercises and all for your thighs where you you was having competitions. Who can stand, stand, bend your knees with your back to the wall and hang near the longest. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. a fi- it's a fire burner, isn't it? Yeah. So we got up the next day, and it. I won't name who, who was there, but obviously. We, we we was like shot, so I was laughing because I'm I'm 14th man. So anyway, I goes in the bar because I used to be on loan at Portsmouth, so I knew the people there. So I went and see a few mates. I'd had a couple of brandies before the game. All of a sudden, the, the assistant manager runs up. Terry Fenix broke his leg in the warm up. So now <laughs> my legs are gone. I've had a couple of brandies. I'm thinking, please don't get on. The pitch is like a quagmire, and. Uh, <laughs> Gazza was having an absolute nightmare. His legs had gone. We're 1-0 down. So you're thinking, right, we're out of the cup here. And he sort of, this is how good he was, he sort of ran forward and scored an header, basically out of, you know, on a counter-attack. And the adrenaline of him, you know, he's run back. They took kick-off. Two minutes later, he gets the ball, drops a shoulder, beats one, plays a 1-2, gets it back, goes in and scores another fantastic goal. 2-1, he's the hero, you know. And if you, you know, if you knew how he prepared for that game, <laughs> you people wouldn't have believed it. But that's how good he was. When you in those days, did anyone have any like concerns about him or think he should? Did you think he'd change, or do you think he'd play his whole career like this, or did people think? I just think someone will get a handle on him. And yeah, I just think he was that type of character and that good. I mean, Venables, the manager at the time, he he just let him do what he wanted. Mm. Because if you try to restrict him or, or tie him down to a certain way of living or p- lifestyle or position when he played, you wouldn't get the best out of him. Yeah, He was just a, a free spirit. So he could get away with it because he was yeah. fantastic and he was young. But obviously the lifestyle caught up with him in the end. Did you go, didn't all the players go and visit him in hospital after yeah. that cup final? Yeah, we all went after, obviously... 
you know, it was it was devastating for him because of what happened, you know. But he wanted to get out out of bed and come to the party with his crochet hanging on. The doctor wouldn't let him. But was it a case of him being dangerously wound up before that final? Like, could you tell? Yeah. It was like he was just not in the right headspace for it. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he. Uh, I actually see him before. Because in the, in the day with the football focus and all that, the cup final was on telly when it all day from mm. when you got up, and we was actually in one of the old tellies, and it was behind the curtain where we had our pre-match meal. So it was another room. So we was in there, and someone said something half detrimental about Spurs not winning, and he kicked the telly through. Basically, not on the not morning through, of the cup. Final. Yeah, like for a laugh, he kicked it off the cabinet. It was yeah. Like, and it went backwards and you heard a big smack and we just all ran out laughing and I thought blimey here we go bring on Gary Charles <laughs> and finally Nish Kumar tells us about the time he met Dion Dublin um, have you ever met a 90s footballer? Yeah, I've met uh, I've met two nineties footballers oh, yeah. at once. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was going to do <laughs> I was going to do a, a music festival called Vestival, which oh, yeah. unsurprisingly just ran for the one year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they only sold I think about a third of the tickets that oh, they yeah. needed. What to was sell. The, who were the headliners to try and get people? Well, off? here's where the problems start, Joshua. <laughs> the uh, the music headliners were Top Loader, wow. and second on the bill musically was a little man called Dion Dublin. Oh wow! <laughs> Dion Dublin no. was there playing the percussive instrument, the dupe, the dupe. That's weird. That he what? has patented. Oh, did you watch him? Yeah, so he did a little demonstration of the dupe, which is admittedly quite yeah. impressive. Yeah. Right, it's a little box that sort of, it's like a computer drum thing, but it's, yeah. a, it's a little white box. And he was there, and uh, there's two kind of points of interest. He was very nice. We all had, sort of had a little chat mm. to him. We're all football fans. Uh, he then joined Top Loader in their headline <laughs> set. Come on. For, what, for Dancing in the Moonlight. I have seen Top Loader play Dancing in the Moonlight whilst accompanied by Dion Dublin on a percussive instrument he has patented. This festival should have gone on for a thousand years. <laughs> it really, it feels like, when you tell it now, it feels like a dream yeah. I had. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem the is The following that... year, it was Train accompanied... <laughs> By Diego Forlan on his own eight-stringed instrument. <laughs> but then one of the problems was that Top Loader played Dancing in the Moonlight four songs in. Yeah, right. And the uh, 150 strong crowd uh, just continued to sing Dancing in the Moonlight. Oh, no, no, the no, 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 no. One of the bleakest oh, things I've right. ever seen. But the, uh, the sort of outstanding detail of that day was we knew Dion Dublin was going to be there. And there was a guy taking photos. And I was like, oh, it's nice that Dion's brought his mate down. And oh, no. Tom Rosenthal went, that's Darren Huckabee. <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> Dublin and Huckabee just hanging out. Wow. Huckabee, Huckabee who yeah. made his own camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, that's going to take some beating. Uh, yeah, it, it, absolutely if extraordinary. We'd have sent, if we'd got that sent in, we'd have dismissed it <laughs> yeah. as too outlandish. <laughs> yeah. you, you hear really stories is. like that, but you can't believe they happened, but they, of course they do. Yeah, of course, of course they just they hang out. This is a mad world. They had a yeah. great understanding. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's football. Yeah. Isn't they rehearsed? Yeah. Like Dion and Topline. <laughs> Dublin sort of has. He, he was pretty confident musically. Like, I think he's the sort of person. Also, let's face it, he's not turning up to join the Mahavishnu Orchestra yeah, yeah. or like Miles Davis's backing band. It's top loader doing yeah, dancing yeah. in the world. Dion's probably like, is that a square 4 4 beat? Yeah. I think I'll be able to keep up. I think me and the Dube are going to be absolutely fine. That's what he calls Darren Huckabee. <laughs> That was some more, uh, now that's what I call Quickly Kevin Best Bits. Now, Skull, how are we going to end the show? We've got one song left, uh, well, one poem left from the Des Lynam album, but I understand, Michael, you've got concerns that this may be a bit too saucy. Do you want to give us a bit more on that? Yeah, well, it's titled uh, Act of Love, and <laughs> I think I think it's fine. It's a little bit of blue for the dads, but... Um... You know, if you've got any young listeners, turn away now. A little bit of Des's uh, silky tones with a, let's, let's call it a little bit of bawdy poem humour. Okay, that's it for now. That's what I call Quickly Kevin, volume eight. Up next on Monday, we were sent an amazing Manchester United documentary from the 89-90 season that is simply sensational. Football at its most naive. It is fantastic <laughs> stuff. And we've got in to help us with this, Ben Clark, comedian from Pappies. It is an absolute barnstormer. So make sure you're there on Monday for that episode. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. I lost the love some time ago. Now I've only the act to grind. Brought her home from a party, don't bother swapping names. Identity's not needed when you're only playing games. High on bedroom darkness, we endure the pantomime. Ships that go bang in the night run aground on the sands of time. Saved in the nick of dawn, it's cornflakes and then goodbye. Another notch on the headboard, another day wondering why. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. I lost the love some time ago. Now I've only the act to grind. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.